Good morning, church. Good morning. Please join in prayer with me. Father, I thank you so much for the blessing it is to be gathered with your people this morning. Thank you for each brother and sister here. Thank you for each person that you drew here this morning. Thank you for your care for every single person here who's made in your image. Lord, I pray that we would have a sense of your care for your church this morning as we look at this early picture of your early church living out their devotion. God, I pray that we would be a more devoted people after having heard this word. So Lord, we say, come, work by your spirit through your word to conform us into the image of your dear son. That's what we want more than anything, Lord. That's what we want more than just getting out of difficult trials or pains. Lord, we want to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. Work that in us, Lord. Help me as I preach, Lord. Help me to preach in the power and demonstration of your Holy Spirit. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name we give glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Acts chapter 2 is an awesome chapter. I'm Personally, for me, preaching through Acts chapter 2 has just filled me with a fresh appreciation for these words. This was a watershed moment in Acts chapter 2 that we have been reading about. And it's, it's, not an, it's not an overstatement to say that it was a watershed moment. When you talk about the major things that God has done throughout history, this is one of the highest points that you could find. God pouring out his spirit at Pentecost. When this spectacle took place in Jerusalem. Remember all the devout Jews and proselytes, those who were converted Jews, gathering from all these nations under heaven, from all over the known world in Jerusalem for this feast, 50 days after Passover, because God in that moment wanted to make a spectacle. He filled his church with the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in tongues, that is foreign languages, that these people from these different nations were hearing. They were amazed. They were bewildered. They were astonished. They had all kinds of different emotions going on when they're hearing God's mighty works, chief among them, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in their own language. Some of them mocked. Most of them had very sincere questions to ask about what was happening. They wanted an explanation. And that was the point of the spectacle in Jerusalem, right? God wanted to give an explanation. So he got everybody's attention. And then he, as it were, hands the mic to Peter. Says, tell him. Tell him the good news. He explains how God poured out his spirit in accordance with his promise to, through the prophet Joel. Peter wants to make very clear that them speaking in these languages was not evidence that they drank too much wine. But it was evidence that the spirit of God had been poured out in the last time. And that he poured out his spirit on all kinds of different people who would prophesy. They would speak forth the word of God, the mighty acts of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ in these last days. Before the last day of the last days. While people still had time to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But Peter didn't stop there. He wanted to tell them how the spirit got poured out to begin with. So he talks to them about Jesus, this Jesus who came and who was powerfully 
attested to by the Father by mighty works and wonders done in his life. Talked about his death or his death that happened according to God's perfect sovereign plan, even though at the hands of wicked men. He talked about how Jesus couldn't be held by the grave because he was sinless and how he was raised powerfully by God, but not just raised from the graves. He was exalted to the right hand of God and he received the promise, the promised Holy Spirit whom he poured out. And Peter said, which you are seeing and hearing this day. So he drew that conclusion. Let everybody know for certain two things. One, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And two, that every single human being is accountable to him. And we marveled last week looking at the response of those original hearers in Jerusalem. They were cut to the heart. By the grace of God, they were cut deep. They came under very real and profound conviction of their sins. They cried out, brothers, what shall we do? And you had these loving, godly apostles there eager to tell them, repent, repent, flee from this wicked and crooked generation. Run to Christ, turn from your sins and run to Jesus Christ, repent, and then express that repentance in baptism. Be willing to identify with Christ, put the ring on, as it were. He gives them assurance. Like if you'll repent, you can know for sure that your sins are forgiven, all of them, and that you have new life in the Spirit. It's truly beautiful, the response that we saw. And one of the questions that lingered in my mind as we left the passage we were in last week is this. What is the most natural thing that these people can do in light of the supernatural thing that God has done? Like, What's the most natural thing they could do in light of the supernatural thing that God has just done in their hearts and in their lives? The answer to the question is really simple. They joined a church. They joined a church. They joined the assembly of believers. They were baptized, and that day were added to the church 3,000 souls, genuine conversions. And in case we're wondering what they were added to, our whole passage, verses 42 to 47, or, yeah, 42 to 47, show that we're talking about this assembly of believers. They were joined the church. And so when I ask the question, what is the most natural thing for them to do in light of the supernatural thing that God has done? Verse 42, and they devoted themselves. And they devoted themselves. This spirit-filled church demonstrates devotion. And really, any spirit-filled church will demonstrate devotion in two main ways. Devotion to God's word and devotion to God's people. This is pretty simple stuff, isn't it? But I trust by the time we're done today, we're all going to be challenged by the devotion that we are reading about in these verses. Devotion to God's word and devotion to God's people. Let's look at the these two areas of devotion that we see in verses 42 through 47. Devotion to the word of God, that is the apostles' teaching, right? Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So what are we talking about when we talk about the apostles' teaching? What did Luke mean here when he wrote that phrase? We're talking about the apostles passing on Jesus' teachings and stories 
Remember, they were eyewitnesses. They lived this life with Jesus. So everything that they were seeing and hearing in his earthly ministry and that time after his resurrection, remember, he was with them for 40 days teaching them about the kingdom. And so all these things that they have seen and heard, they are now passing on to other followers. Now, it just wasn't just those teaching, but these also they would also uh, be those who didn't just ditch the Old Testament, but they would take the time to explain to these new believers how the Old Testament passages were fulfilled in Jesus. We see Peter doing that even in Acts chapter 2, right? When he's explaining the pouring out of the Spirit, he points to the book of um, the, the prophet Joel. And so they loved their Old Testaments, but they wanted them to see how they were not abolished, but fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So they're passing on the teachings, the stories about Jesus, helping them understand the Old Testament in light of the coming of Christ, in light of the death of Christ, in light of the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. And they are directed by the Spirit, helping these early believers start applying these things. They're giving the implications of these things. And a lot of ways, that's what we have in the epistles, in these letters in the New Testament. We have the most refined revelation from God. Everything channeled through the death, resurrection, exaltation of Christ, and now applied to the church. So they're getting, a lot of ways, the epistles uh, before some of them were even written down, you know, in their essence. Now, one way to put it is in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, uh, Luke speaking to Theopolis says, and when he was talking about the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, he says, I have dealt with, um, I dealt, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach in his first book, right? The prequel, book of Acts. Now in the sequel, in, in, or sorry, the book of Luke, now in the sequel, in the book of Acts, he is saying, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm recounting what Jesus continued to do and teach. And you can say, through his apostles. They're continuing what Jesus taught. And their teaching, inspired by the Spirit, is going to be um, the standard that everything else is going to be judged by. So when we talk about devotion to the apostles' teaching, that is, should be the standard of what every gospel-preaching church teaches. Does it agree with what the apostles taught, Right? Which is the whole Bible, but the apostles are in the, in the New Testament are really the most refined version of what God has taught and what God has revealed about Himself. And so they're teaching these things and the early believers were devoting themselves to them. And it says in verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And so you have these mighty things happening even as the apostles are teaching. This is more evidence, even more evidence that a new age has dawned. Power is breaking in. And this is a powerful confirmation of the truthfulness of their teaching. Everybody is aware as God is all over everything that the apostles are doing at this point. The very spirit of Christ is with them. So that verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to what they were learning from the apostles. That idea of devotion, being devoted, has the idea in it of persistence or persevering in something. So they continue to persevere, immerse themselves, if you will, in the teachings of the apostles. 
They received it for what it really was. That is the word of God. They, and this is an encouraging thought, like they didn't need to be really seasoned saints that have walked with the Lord for years and years and years to be devoted to what God was doing. But they did have to have a heart for it. Get that? They didn't need all these years to be a devoted people, but they did need to have a heart, and that's what God just gave them when he cut them to the heart and just gave them new life. And this is what we're seeing as the result of that is that they are radically devoted to the apostles' teaching. So we see that clear in our minds, but what does it look like in our lives? What would it look like to be devoted to the apostles' teaching? It's very important to see in any local church that if the teaching suffers, the fellowship is going to suffer. If the teaching suffers, it's going to affect everything else in the church life. God has designed the ministry of the word to be the backbone of the life and fellowship of every local church. This is how God has designed it. And so you could say, what would it look like to be devoted? Well, first and foremost, there has to be leaders that would prioritize apostolic teaching. They would prioritize the teaching of the apostles. And here we're going to see it soon in Acts chapter 6 when things come up in the church and there's a lot of different things vying for the attention of the leaders. They had a resolute focus. They said, no, we cannot give up prayer and the ministry of the word to do all these other things. These things are absolutely central. And so they would not allow themselves to be distracted. And so one way you can put it is this. When we talk about what it would look like to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, well, leaders must prioritize their teaching and the peoples must prioritize their learning. You see that? The apostles, so like leaders in a local church, have to prioritize their teaching, not let everything else crowd it out, but the people must prioritize their learning. There's really nothing more important to the lifeblood of the church or the lifeblood of the Christian as than to get this apostolic teaching in their souls. <clears throat> so there must be a devotion among the leaders and a devotion among all the people. A church's health hangs largely on one all-important dynamic, the leader's devotion to the apostle teaching and the people's devotion to receive and apply that teaching. Cannot stress this strong enough. So we have to prioritize this teaching. So what does that look like? Here's some thoughts. Be prepared. Be prepared. In one sense, of preparing your heart to be able to receive the word of God. Try to keep your heart in a posture where you're able to receive the word of God. And I even think just simple things like we do even in the midst of our gathering. You notice when we the word of God is read before the congregation, then we sit down and one of the worship leaders will say, take a moment to prepare your hearts. Like, Take that time to prepare your hearts. Cry out to God earnestly for a heart that's ready to receive apostolic teaching. Um, but even it starts before we even get here, doesn't it? Preparing our hearts for the Lord's day. I mean, one practice that, that we do at my home is on Saturday nights, we'll read the sermon text that's going to be preached and we'll pray it as a family. Very simple. It just takes a few minutes, but just reading it, praying it. Sometimes we get in discussion about it, but just preparing our minds and hearts to receive the teaching of God's word. So be prepared, but also be present. This should make, this is kind of common sense, right? But it's something that can be very, like, 
How are you going to receive the teaching if you are not present to receive the teaching? Devotion to the, to the teaching, the apostolic teaching, looks in part like coming to church and wanting to be here and say, God, you have a word for me today and I want to receive it. Now, of course, we have the scriptures and so devotion will look like reading our Bibles on our own and things like that and maybe Bible studies, but in a very, you know, basic way, it's going to look like gathering on the Lord's Day to hear the word of God. Be present. Be eager to hear the word. I mean, think about that. Think about this picture that God gives us from nature. When, you know, a mama bird goes and collects the worm, comes back to the nest, what are all these chicks doing? Yeah, exactly. Their mouths are open wide. They're just chirping like crazy. Feed me, feed me. We want to have that kind of eagerness. As soon as, you know, as soon as mama bird's ready on the nest, like we're ready. God, feed us. Feed us your word. We want to be as desperate as those little birds are, and we want to be chirping for that word. And I'm I'm personally thankful to God that our church is a church that's hungry for the word of God. But I think you would agree with me, we can always grow. And so I would say what the apostles often said is, do so more and more. What you're doing, do so more and more. Stir yourselves up in this way. So be prepared, be present, be prayerful. Be prayerful not just before the sermon, but I want to encourage you, this is this is not just an intellectual exercise. Right? I'm not up here preaching just so that you can go, oh, I learned something new. Right? Like this, it is, you have to engage the mind, but it's more than that. You want this to go down into your heart, right? And be worked out into your life. And uh, some of you like taking notes. Some of you can't take notes. I've heard some of you say to me, like, I can't take notes. As soon as I start taking notes, I lose everything else. And so, you know, frankly, whether you take notes or not is not that important. The most important thing, though, is that you are engaging God as you are being engaged by his word, that you're crying out. And so even in a moment like this, you're praying, praying for me as I preach. You're praying for your own heart. You're praying for people here that don't know Jesus to be able to hear the gospel and respond to it. You're praying for your brothers and sisters. You're praying for a saint that you know is suffering in the church, that God God's word would be a healing balm to their soul. But we're praying. We're engaging God as we hear his word. And so be prepared, be present, be prayerful, and uh, be one who ponders over what has been taught. Okay? Be one who ponders over what has been taught. It's not meant to just be heard in this moment. It's some, it's something that's meant to echo in your soul throughout the week. Do whatever it takes to be one who is mulling over these things through the week. So, for example, it could look like after church, in conversations with brothers and sisters. It could look like a- asking each other, okay, what, what was God ministering to you through the word today? Um, it could look like, uh, praying for one another, you sharing with your own, like, you know, this, I sense God convicting me in this area, but it's not deep enough in me. Will you pray with me that God, I love seeing brothers and sisters praying God's word deeper into each other's souls. This is a way to be devoted to apostolic teaching, but to ponder, to ponder it. Like the cow chews the cud. We should be mulling over. We should be chewing on the word of God throughout the week. Whatever it takes, brothers and sisters, please, and I labor pretty hard on this to make sure that there's a word, a feast spread for you on the Lord's Day. And it's not so that you just kind of, in one ear, but you would 
do what God wants you to do. He would want you to digest it. Take the time to break it down. Take the time to get it in your soul. And as you do that through the week, you'll be surprised how much more it sticks with you. This is the apostolic word. Let's receive it. Um, you know, and one of the things I just want to say on a personal note, like, like I would speak for any of the brothers that are bringing the word here. We labor really hard in the word at FBC so that you can rest on the Lord's day so that you can come from your weary week and you can sit in the presence of God with his people and feast until your hearts are content. We know that you get weary and there's a lot of battles in your week. And so this is a gift. This is the way God's designed it for leaders in the church to labor, a labor of love through the week. And it's not just an intellectual, like trying to understand a passage. There's a soul battle that goes on in order to be at a place to minister this word the way that it should be ministered to the people of God. So it's a battle throughout the entire week. Any man that's preached up here would say that, but it's for you. It's for you. So be devoted to it. Give yourself to it. Take time to ponder it, digest it, get it down into your soul. When the apostles' teaching is being expounded, we want the truly devout heart is not going to want to miss it. It's not going to want to miss it. It's going to want to attend to it. And oh, that FBC would be more and more and more devoted to God's word. And I just remember the words that Peter spoke when he said, compared the word of God to like a lamp shining in a dark place. And he says, you do well to stay near it. You do well to stay near that lamp. May we do that and not take lightly what is being described here. And so I'll just ask you this question. What changes do you need to make to be more devoted to the apostolic teaching that you're being entrusted with? Just personally, like what do you, what changes do you need to make in order to be more devoted to this word so that it could be said, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Please take that to heart. That might be something for you to ponder um, as you go from here today and get counsel on from others. See, the apostles' teaching, the teaching from the word of God, God's word, devotion to God's word, this is the backbone. It's the backbone of all true fellowship in a church. And we're going to see the beautiful fellowship in this next part of the passage. And I just want to say, every beautiful thing you're going to see in the rest of this passage, you can trace it back to devotion, to the apostolic teaching. If that goes, everything else is going to go. Fellowship becomes absolutely shallow and superficial when this teaching is not attended to the way that it should be. So with that said, we've considered devotion to God's word. Let's consider devotion to God's people, right? It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And the fellowship. What does he mean by fellowship? We're talking about these close relationships, this heart-knittedness, the sacred bond that has been formed between these people, in part because of the great gratitude they feel for the grace that they have experienced. So we don't want to forget what happened in the passages leading up to this, right? There were all these sinners that were told, they were ignorant of the Messiah, ignorant of the Lordship of Christ, his death, his resurrection. Well, God in his mercy made a spectacle to make that known to them. 
right? So they could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were cut to the heart. They know it was a work of God. Their lives have been flipped upside down. They have new life in the spirit now. They're naturally inclined out to want to be with God's people and devote themselves not just to God's word, but also to God's people because there's all these other people around that have been touched by the same grace. And they know it. They're aware of it. They know they're all debtors. None of them deserve to be around this table of fellowship. But here they are, together. And that's the heart of what it means by fellowship here. They have this shared grace they've experienced. And because of that, they have shared goals together to make this Christ known. That's their goal together. And so there's a sweet, holy camaraderie in this group of people, even from the earliest stages. There is, you could say, as we're going to see, kind of a habitual togetherness. That's what this fellowship looks like on the ground. A habitual, they can't help it. They're just constantly wanting to be together. And it takes a number of forms. I would point out five to kind of isolate five of them. Like you could say they give together, they worship together, they pray together, they eat together, they witness together. This is what it will look like in a spirit-filled church, just devoted not just to God's word, but to God's people. Think about those. Like a spirit-filled church would be They'll give together. That's part of what their togetherness, their fellowship will look like. Look at verses 45 and, uh, 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. These verses contain just a breathtaking picture of generosity, don't they? Let me tell you what was not happening, okay? Get this out of the way. Um, what was not happening, okay? This is not advocating uh, communalism. There's nothing that suggests that one must give up all their personal property as a condition for being part of a community. They were already part of this community by the grace of God. They were all part of it. Now, being part of it, being on the inside and experiencing with profound gratitude and joy what it means to be part of the fellowship, this is how they acted. But another thing I could say, too, is evidence that they uh, weren't giving up all of their possessions, like all in one shot here, is that it says in verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They had homes to break bread in together, so they must not have given away all their possessions. Now, you could say this as well. Um, as the church, okay, so, so what was happening? So verse 45, and just the way the verb is, it's an imperfect verb, the, it suggests that the selling and the giving were occasional. As specific needs arose, it was not... This is the last negative thing I'm going to say because these verses are beautiful. It was not a once and for all giving up a one's possession in order to join a community. Okay, This has to be used because communities have used it that way before. So what is happening positively in this beautiful text? The Spirit was working in them and among them as a community of blood-bought believers. They were sensitive to what God wanted them to do by the Spirit. They were walking close with God, hearing his word, hearing his heart, and seeing the needs of his people. 
So they were supernaturally open-handed with regards to what God had given them to meet the needs of those around them. As the church had a need, people joyfully sold possessions and belongings, that is for them since they didn't have, you know, major banks and stuff to, with, with debit cards and stuff like that. They would sell real estate and valuables wherever their money was in a sense stored in order to go, oh, yeah, okay, there's these needs, so they're selling off some of their things in order to meet the needs of other people in the community of believers. And there is a principle that seems to be at work here. Generally speaking, the more in step with the Spirit, the more open the hand. Ponder that for ourselves. The more in step with the Spirit, the more open the hand more freely we will give in generosity a good heart check for all of us and there's two verses i think that could be put side by side here that i think help us to understand that these verses are communicating a certain mindset a certain posture of heart so in verse 44 it says and all who believed were together and had all things in common I already said what that doesn't mean, and one reason I say that is in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, you can flip a page if you want to, I think this verse gives insight into this mindset. It was a mindset. Acts 4.32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. In other words, there was a mindset about our earthly possessions. Like, yes, it's mine, right? But in a sense, it's not. It's God's. And because it's God's and I belong to God's people, I will give freely as the need has it. There's an open-handedness within the community of believers. As they saw needs, they gave, um, and they gave generously. And so this is a breathtaking display of generosity that should challenge every single one of our hearts. And as it displays generosity, it's really a display of love, isn't it? It's a display of love within the community of believers. In a lot of ways, if you wanted to compare this to something, this is a really happy and healthy family, right? They see a need within the family and they rally to meet that need. That's what's happening right here. And it makes me think of First John three seventeen and 18 that says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And as we see this picture of the early church here, we can't help but go, wow, this is love at work. In deed and in truth. They weren't just talking, they were doing it. And so see the fellowship they gave together. They also worshiped together. Look at verse 46. Back to our text, verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they worshiped together. Now, one thing that might, one question might be coming to your mind as you think about this passage, certainly came to my mind is, why are these Christians going to the temple? Did that come to your mind at all? Like, why, why are they going to the temple? <laughs> well, I'm going to give you an answer. Um, remember that 
the temple of Christ Day wasn't merely a place where animal sacrifices were performed. It was a place of teaching and preaching and prayer. So that's something to keep in mind. But maybe the thing that will be most helpful in thinking about like why they're going to the temple is it was very natural for these Jewish Christians to continue to meet in the temple since they were all, all, they were after all still Jewish, right? Also, Jesus often visited the temple and taught there and engaged people. It would have been natural for them to do the same. Not to mention they had ample opportunity for evangelism to go and meet with their kindred according to the flesh, the rest of the Jewish people there who they no doubt already long to see one to Christ and experience the grace that they have experienced. And so it was natural for them as Jews to want to attend some of these services at the temple, but it wasn't central. And how do we see that? Well, think about um, Stephen's speech in a few chapters. Coming up in chapter 7, Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church, uh, I'm not going to steal all the thunder of that sermon, but I will just say here, one of the things that he brought out in a sermon that people didn't take too kindly at the time was him saying basically that it's not all about the temple. So like this is an early Christian saying, yeah, it's, it's, it's been important, but it's not all about the temple. The temple is no longer the central place where we worship. And Jesus himself hinted at this shift when he met the woman at the well, right? The Samaritan woman, John chapter 4 where she's, you know, that's quite the exchange there. But he basically says, well, when the day is coming, well, people are not going to worship on this mountain or this temple. Like, like people will worship in spirit and in truth. The point is the temple is no longer the central place. Worship in spirit and truth, not a physical building. Then center around a physical building. But you can see why the early Christians did because of their proximity to the temple and the type of services that were there. They could still go there. They could still pray and they could still engage their um, kindred, the fellow Jews there. Now, I also want to say a word here about frequency. Did you notice that? It says, and day by day attending the temple, right? And breaking bread. So day by day, I want to process this with you. How did they pull this off? Especially since people had to work. Right? How did they pull this on? I think what I'd say is they had stated times of prayer, right? And it says even in chapter 3 that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And so they had stated hours of prayer. And so they would go before work, after work. They still had to work, right? They didn't just give up working to meet together. No, they still worked. They still did their normal jobs. But they did make a priority of gathering as much as they could, but why so often, day to day? Well, in one sense, they could, right? They were close in proximity. It's right there, right? It's like walking down the block almost. Okay, maybe a little more than that for some of them. So it was just there. They could because of proximity, but they also wanted to. They wanted to. They had hearts for it. Their devotion was strong, and it was sincere. And I think you can see where I'm going to go with this. When it comes to devotion, I think that we should be deeply challenged by what we see here in terms of the frequency of gathering together. It wasn't always for a large gathering, 
But there was many more spontaneous gatherings with the people of God even through the week. That's why it talks about house to house. And I think that some have the mindset, like, like I'm sorry, like Sunday is just too much for you. Like, oh, like too much. Oh, a few hours on the Lord. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just oozing with sarcasm right now. Like, we're about to feel this. Like some, some Christians live with almost a little chip on their shoulder that God would demand a couple hours out of your week. And heaven forbid those really stingy type that are saying, or the, the really strict type that are saying the Lord's day should be set apart for worship, private and public. Right? I'm saying, look at this example of devotion. Some of us should be ashamed of how pitiful our devotion is to the people of God should be ashamed of it. We should actually repent of our pathetic attitude when it comes to voting ourselves to the people of God. You can take time even right now in your own heart. Just confess it to the Lord. Lord, wow, I see how far I've gone. I've been more shaped by the culture and the sense of consumerism in our culture, not just consumerism, but this individualism in our culture that makes it all about us and all about our schedules Actually, it's all about God and everything should orientate around God and what his plans are. And true devotion out of a Christian is going to surround devotion to God's word and devotion to God's people. And at the heart of devotion for God's people is a togetherness, a heart to want to be together with the people of God really as often as we can. So we, we need kind of a perspective shift, you know, on, on this kind of thing. I don't apologize that you need to come here and gather with God's people, right? This is what God's word says. In fact, you know, it's like training wheels just to get people here on Sundays. I mean, a mature Christian is going to see the value of gathering with God's people at all kinds of different times. There's going to be a heart of devotion to the fellowship and an appreciation for being able to be part of God's people. This is an awesome thing. And I always feel bad sometimes when I have to make an exhortation about meeting together when you're the ones here, <laughs> you know? But I think all of us need to take this to heart and we need to disciple one another with this kind of expectation. Let our hearts be broadened and deepened on this point and be challenged. And this, and we can, someone can say, well, this was, this was descriptive, not prescriptive. Like, I mean, look, here, you're just saying what happened then, but that doesn't mean it has to happen now. I'm like, well, Looking at the book of Hebrews, he seemed to be pretty serious about it. Same kind of thing. Look, Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Were they picking up the telephone? No. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You need the fellowship. I need the fellowship. So let's be devoted to the fellowship. Or Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some implied. That's a really bad habit. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Isn't that beautiful? This is what God wants for his people in terms of devotion to the fellowship. Now, in our context, sometimes proximity can be a hindrance, okay? 
The heart of the matter is, is there a desire? Do you long to be with God's people? Do you look forward to it? I mean, few people drive further than like the Deckers, for example. And it's like, I praise God for their devotion. I mean, John's like, been a long day. He's coming to Bible study at the night and uh, none of the other guys can complain because he went further than any of them. And he could say, I could think of, how do you say that, John? Like hundreds of reasons why I shouldn't come tonight. But there was one reason to come. And he could say, the fellowship. The fellowship. It's just devotion to it. And there's an example, in, in, you know, it's good to lift up examples sometimes. Like, brother like that, thank John Decker, like, how encouraged have you been by his devotion to the fellowship? We are meant to be devoted to the fellowship, and your devotion to the fellowship is meant to spur others on in their devotion to the fellowship. John, thank you for being an example to us, brother, in that area. Glory be to God. Sometimes proximity hinders us, and we're farther out where we can't meet as often maybe as we would like, but God sees the desire of the heart, and to do it as often as we can I think is a really helpful thing. If there's something that's going to be unifying to the church, don't just blow it off. Consider leaning into it in light of what we're seeing in a text like this. And I would also say this just by way of counsel. You know, for some people, proximity could be such a hindrance where you're coming to church once a month. And I'd say, if proximity is that much of a hindrance for you, we want to help you find another gospel preaching local church that you can be devoted to. That's how important it is to meet as part of the fellowship. It's not about us. This is about us being devoted to God's purposes in this world. And it does center around being part of a local body of believers. So these early Christians, they were, they give together, they worship together, they, you could say, pray together. They pray together. And they, they do this, you know, in more formal context. They do it in more informal context. They do it in the temple. They do it in homes. I think that's important to see too. There's meant to be a rhythm of formal and informal in the life of the Christian. But boy, when it talks about prayer, verse four, verse 42, sorry. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship. Those are the two big categories. You could put a lot of things underneath that. But one expression of being devoted to both the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship is prayer. And it's not just prayer by ourselves. There's an emphasis on praying together, praying together, being devoted to prayer together. Prayer was the lifeblood, the lifeblood of the church, the whole church, not just the leaders. Acts 1, 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. I mean, they were devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 1, 24, and they prayed. Remember when they were going to, they needed wisdom to know who was going to replace Judas because his office of apostle was vacant. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. Just devoted to seeking the mind of God in important matters. Acts 4, 20, or 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. That's awesome. Looking forward to getting to that text. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word with boldness. The people of God cried out to God. Kind of like that feel we had when we were singing that song, Lord of Harvest, the crying out to him, Lord of Harvest, or Acts 6.4. Look at the leaders that were setting the tone for the whole community of believers. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. 
I've been challenged sometimes because in my mind, I've just switched those around. I've said the ministry of the word and prayer, but just even seeing the priority there, right? And it doesn't mean that the word is less important than that, but it just, it is stated first in that text, but it's just to say that the early church was a praying church. God has not wanted this to change. A church that barely prays is a church that's barely alive. I mean that. Churches can have all these programs that, that gather a bunch of superficial people, right? And they look good on the outside, but they're not a praying church. They're not depending on God. It's like throwing a party for Jesus that Jesus isn't even invited to, right? It's like, let's just put it on like it's for him, but we're not, he's actually not on the invitation list. Like a praying church is a people that want the power of God present in their lives, we will be a people, and part of our devotion would be a devotion to prayer as part of our fellowship with one another. So this is not just a hobby horse. This is the biblical, you know, just pulse that you hear over and over again. And so in one sense, we just got to keep beating this drum until everybody is with this sense of we need to devote ourselves to prayer. I mean, really, even in your own life, how can you expect God's power to move in your life? It's just self-reliance. If we're, if we're not a praying people, we're, we're prideful people. That's what it is. I mean, I don't know anything. I got enough problem with pride in different areas. Like, I don't know the best remedy to that is to be a prayerful person because it helps us remember where the real power comes from, where our help comes from, and how needy we actually are. And so a praying people can expect to experience the power of God. And I think we're starting to taste more and more of that at FBC. And imagine what it would be like if more and more people were devoted to praying together. Now, I'm going to ask you this challenging question. If your children grew up to be as devoted to prayer and the word as you are, how healthy would the church be in their generation? If your children grew up being as devoted to prayer and the word as you are, how healthy would the church be in their generation? It's not just about us. This has massive ripple effects. I want to be a man who's devoted to the word and prayer. I want to see my children love the word of God and love prayer. I can't ultimately control it, but I can model it for my, with my life. You know, And my prayer is for all of us. We'd model these things by our example, and it would have ripple effects for the generations come, but we reap what we sow. There's churches dying or dead right now because they kept wanting to play church instead of be the church. And part of being the church is being devoted to the fellowship, and part of being devoted to fellowship is being people devoted to prayer, not just by ourselves, but with the people of God. Clear enough in the word, brothers and sisters? They also ate together. This is amazing. They, they ate, a, they seemed to eat a lot, uh, together. Fellowship was, this is an important part of fellowship. Breaking of bread and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received the food with glad and generous, like, they're, why is this talking about how they received the food? You know, it was just such a big part of their fellowship together. It's really quite beautiful. And um, 
it was, again, there was a formality to it. They met in the temple at times, but there was also informal. They met in their homes. They broke bread. They regularly shared meals together. Now, there's kind of a challenge in this text because you wonder, with the breaking of bread, is this referring to partaking of the Lord's Supper, or is it referring to just like a common table meal together? It's honestly just very hard, I think, to come to just a really dogmatic conclusion on that point. But it does seem that both of them would be in view at some level within the community of believers. And often, uh, when they were partaking of a larger meal together, the Lord's Supper would be incorporated into the meal, you know, as a love feast. And so um, that happened, probably not at every meal, but my sense was that there's a blend, you know. They gathered, they met, they partook of the Lord's Supper, enjoyed um, remembering their bonds of peace around the table of the king, right? But they also just enjoyed the fellowship that they have in Christ to spur one another on and such a good word for us in terms of just hospitality. So you wonder like, what would it look like to meet more regularly? One of the big ways it would look like is getting food together and partaking of a meal together as a foretaste of the feasting we're going to do in heaven one day together. Every time we gather, and it's not just like shoot the breeze together, there can be some of that, but like consecrate it to the Lord. Want to do good for each other's souls when you're together. Show a care for one another. And as we do, and you know that feeling, like when you're around the table and you're, 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 you're communing together in the Lord, um, there's a beauty, and it is. There is a foretaste of what we're going to experience in the day to come. And God's word is saying, yeah, I want you to experience that often. I want you to get a lot of little foretaste of that uh, feasting and that fellowship. Talk about the fellowship that we are going to experience in the age to come. And uh, I just can't help but think that these new Christians that we're reading about here, they were enjoying food in a way they had never enjoyed it before in their life. They were finally eating food the way food was meant to be eaten. Remember what it says in First Timothy chapter four verses three to five, it says foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Where people are devoted to prayer and they're devoted to the apostles teaching the word of God, like, and you're feasting together as part of your fellowship, there is just such a sweetness. It's like that is how food is meant to be enjoyed. That is how food is meant to be enjoyed. And I pray maybe some of you today will be able to taste food this afternoon in a way you've never tasted it before because we were made. It's meant to come out of a heart consecrated to God. Simple things in life become supernatural things in life when they're given to God. Their hearts had been touched by grace and they were now enjoying meals in a way that they were made to enjoy them. Now, what about the witness of the church? This is the last one I want to bring out here, is the witness together. They witnessed together, like all this togetherness, right? They, they, uh, they prayed together, they ate together, they worshiped together, right? They witnessed together. Now, in our text, it says in verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. Now, I take that not just to be among the Christians, but also the unbelievers. In one sense, the Christians, I can see it in the sense of like, God is in this place. God is working among us. God is doing things in my heart that I never thought possible before. But among the unbelievers, they're watching what has just happened to 3,000 people in their midst. 
They're going, whoa. They're having, in their own way, a sense of God. But it's connected to these people. And I just want to point out here, the witness together, I'm saying, I think it's implied in this text that the church was witnessing together. On the one hand, it was their witness, just in light of how they were loving each other. The devotion to God's word and God's people was a powerful witness to the outsiders. These people all saw, like, these guys are about something different. These guys are about something lasting. Like, it made all of them stop. You see, a lot of Christians are so pitifully devoted to the things of God that it doesn't make anybody turn their head. They're not much of a spectacle, right? We talked about that. But the more devoted someone is, the more of a spectacle they are, and it makes people take notice. Well, this early band of believers was a spectacle to see. Right? The tongue stopped, but they're still a spectacle. Right? People are noticing them in their lives, and they're leaning in. And so as they would frequent the temple and they would rub shoulders and they would tell about what Christ has done for them, they would bear witness to Jesus, his death and his resurrection, and call people, just like the apostles taught them, repent, believe, be baptized, join the fellowship. This is what they did. And... uh People were in awe, so attracted to them, but no doubt that they were sharing the gospel with people as they went about. And so it says, after it talks about them receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. And I can't help but make a connection. Day by day, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Day by day, people were being saved. There's a deep connection between these two realities that we are not meant to miss. I love seeing these hallmarks of this early church. They were marked by joy and they were marked by generosity. Joy and generosity just stood out among them. It made me think of Jesus' words in John 16, 22, when Jesus says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. And that's what you see in this band of believers. They had this joy that no one could take and it was fairly contagious, it seemed, in Jerusalem at this time. Now, this fellowship that was being enjoyed is a fellowship that every single person is invited into. This fellowship was something that the apostles, inspired by God, wanted everybody to have. You notice it wasn't enough for them to go, wow, how great it was to be an eyewitness to Jesus' life, ministry, miracles, his death, resurrection, all these things. Listen to what the apostle John said. I want you to feel this as we close. First John 1.3, he says, that which we have seen and heard, right? So we experienced in Jesus in real time. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I just want you to know today as you're hearing about this fellowship, this can be yours today. You can actually join the fellowship. Maybe you've been attending for a while, but really in your own heart, you know that you're really on just the fringe. You're like not, you're like kind of close. You blend in a little bit, but you're not in. 
the fellowship. You've never truly repented of your sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's inviting you to do that. The apostles themselves, this is apostolic teaching, that they said, I'm proclaiming these things to you so that you too would share in the same fellowship that we are getting to enjoy. Do not pass up on this fellowship. Do not pass up on this fellowship. It's not good company in hell. It's not good company in hell. This fellowship is a foretaste. I know we're an imperfect community, but God is here. God is at work. And the fellowship of the saints above is going to be something that will blow our minds, and we don't want you to miss out on it. So call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, even today. And some of us will look at this and we'll go, these are idealistic, aren't they? I mean, all these thoughts about devotion to the apostles' teaching and devotion to the people of God, and boy, how much they met together. It's so out of step with our current moment, our current cultural moment. But I just want to say, like, yeah, these are ideals, but ideals are meant to be leaned into. Not the bar set so, like, we're meant to lean into these ideals. Recognize there's grace when we fall short, but we're meant to lean into these ideals. Someone could look at this text and say, this is just a honeymoon phase. It was. It was. Things were going to get a lot harder for this church, as we're going to see. It's going to get a lot harder. Just like when you got married, maybe, if you're married here, you got married, like, there's a honeymoon phase. Praise the Lord, you know? But would you go, you know, hopefully not 15 years, you know, after your marriage going, yeah, that was just an ideal. (laughs) Your spouse is going, yeah, and I wish you would lean in. (laughs) Right? That's what God's saying to every single one of us this morning. Lean in. Lean in to devotion to God's word and lean in to devotion to God's people. It's, yes, this was a honeymoon phase and we as a church are not even, we're past that, okay? We've, we've already taken some hard knocks as a church, have we not? But God has been with us all the way. And he's actually deepening us in this area. And this is what I want to say. Just like in a marriage, there's a honeymoon phase. Praise God. Ride the wave. When things get harder, you say, that fellowship is worth fighting for. And that's what I want to say to you about the church of Jesus Christ. This fellowship that Jesus Christ purchased by his blood is worth fighting for. Will you fight for it? With your own devotion to the word of God and to the people of God. Let's pray. How I love your word, oh God. I thank you that you have not left us blind sitting in this darkness, but your son has risen from on high. We who sat in the darkness have seen a marvelous light. We thank you for sending forth your son. We thank you for proving that he is the Christ. We thank you for his death for us. We thank you for powerfully raising him from the dead and exalting him to your right hand. We thank you that even though we are truly accountable to him, that through faith in him, Lord, that we can have fellowship, not just with each other, but with you, the triune God. I thank you that our fellowship is with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
Thank you, Lord, that I even get to speak the benediction over your people sometimes to be able to say, may the, may the, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Lord, I pray that we would be devoted to this fellowship. I pray that we'd be devoted to your word. I thank you for the devotion that is here. And Lord, I pray that you'd fan it into flame. Oh God, help us not be stunted in growth just by the worldliness pressing in all around us and the empty evangelical Christianity that we see so often. Oh Lord, I pray that your spirit and your word would hold our hearts strong and firm. God, I pray knowing that there are many hearts that are convicted here today. I pray, God, that you'd be merciful to us. Forgive us for being slothful in zeal and failing to be fervent in spirit. Forgive us for sloppy devotion. Forgive us, O oh God. You give us such holy things and we so often treat them too lightly. Forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for not prioritizing your word and the fellowship. Forgive us for blowing off opportunities we have to just show unity with one another. Forgive us for just prioritizing so many different things that it makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to prioritize the main things. We do thank you for the example of the early church, Lord, and how it kind of helps us see this early beauty and see in ways that we may have been drifting from our first love. God, I pray that you would cleanse us, your people, and renew a right spirit within us, a spirit of devotion to our God. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that we've experienced in Christ. Let your people be freshly washed today and renewed. And I just pray, God, that you would do a supernatural thing in our day, that we'd be a people truly devoted, not comparing ourselves to any other church, but looking into the light of your word. And God, with hearts humbled before your word, that you would fill us with your spirit and help us to live out this devotion. We don't just pray this for us, Lord. We pray this for surrounding churches and little falls and others, Lord, that all of us would be gatherings, assemblies of believers that are truly devoted to you. Oh God, would you do a work broadly that would make your church come back to the basics of true devotion, God, if there's any just pretending church when you're not even invited, God, would you cut people to the heart? Would you bring conviction? And that you bring renewal, Lord, in this land that desperately need churches that will be spectacles so that the gospel can be heard and the gospel can be adorned. Lord, get glory in your church. We pray this for the glory of your son. In his name we pray, amen.